Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about weed whacking, spiritually. Uh, honestly, I've been reading lots of stuff lately. I've been uh, listening to lots of messages, reading books, whatever. Even hearing prophetic words, and continually, uh, what keeps coming up is this parable of Jesus's that refers to uh, the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. Uh, that would be the King James version of that one. And it's this, it's this teaching that how the kingdom of God is kind of like a, a farmer that went and planted a wheat field. But at night, the enemy came in, and he planted a bunch of weeds amongst the wheat, some tares. And uh, what happened is you know, those kind of grew up and messed with the crop. And ultimately, uh, it ends with the the farmer having to separate them and burn the, weed, the weeds and uh, put the wheat in the barn. And that's kind of an uh, analogy of kind of uh, heaven as well, that there's a lot of poison that gets into the kingdom of God that can seemingly be fairly indiscernible initially until it matures, and, and then you can start seeing the differences. Um, but it's not the real thing. It actually leads to hell. And... In, in this story, uh, the weed that's being referred to, it actually, would, we would call it now Darnell. And uh, historically, it's referred to as wheat's evil twin. It's very, very similar. It's referred to as a mimic weed. And again, at the very early stages, it looks the exact same. You couldn't tell the difference. But when maturity comes, you can tell the difference. And Darnell gets a lot thicker and uh, darker, and it becomes poisonous. And if you ingest Darnell, it'll actually will, uh, make you nauseous and dizzy and impair your speech and your vision. And in high doses, it's actually a mind-altering drug. In ancient Greece, it was referred to as the plant, uh, the plant of frenzy. Similarly, there's things that you can ingest that look an awful lot like the kingdom of God that'll actually end up altering your vision, your speech, and ultimately, your mind. And you won't even know often this is happening because you think you're ingesting something that's totally fine until it's too late. See, there's a lot of worldliness that dis disrupts the kingdom of heaven. And again, if you don't have that maturity, if that maturity is not there, sometimes it's very hard to tell the difference between what's of God and what's not. And ultimately, some, some of this uh, stuff is so hard to tell that only God will really know He'll be the judge at the end of time. We'll probably be surprised to find out that there'll be some counterfeits that we didn't even know of. But Christians have been, been, have been getting duped by false teaching since the beginning. Uh, if you go into the New Testament, you're going to see that 22 out of 27 New Testament books talk about false teaching. It's a big problem. Always has been. You'll see throughout church history as well, um, lots of different kind of uh, different gospels would show up. Uh, and, and try to distort and pervert Christianity. And Christianity had to rise and defeat it. And again, just specifically in the Bible itself, you see that these ministers had to continually, these writers of the New Testament, had to get out their weed whackers and go to town and cut out what was not of God. Had to do some trimming. And that's kind of what I want to do this morning. That's the theme I'm going with. I'm trying to do some trimming and trimming out some weeds from our crop. Trying to show the difference between the kingdom of God and worldliness. And again, I've been doing a lot of reading, actually, on this topic. And again, the devil is so good at this, he's a brilliant deceiver. The greatest lie is the one that has a little bit of truth in it. And so much of what is being taught is actually, uh, it sounds great, it's, it looks like the real deal sometimes, but it's actually a, a complete trap. And what happens is it actually will cause you to have to change your Christianity, to change your foundations to match it. And then eventually what happens is when you erode your foundations... All of a sudden, you have no foundation, and people will fall away from, this, uh, from their faith. And so, I'm just going to read a Bible passage here that kind of goes into, into this, and again, show you that this was an issue all the way back in the early church. So, Galatians 1, uh, 6 through 10. And the subtitle of this in most Bibles would actually be uh, titled, No Other Gospel. And it's Paul writing this. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who you who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, or even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, 
Let them be under God's curse. As we've already said now, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one that you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's, a, that's a, some pretty serious stuff there. Saying that you would be cursed if you're if preaching this other gospel. It's very serious stuff when people are, are perverting the word of God and, and trying to change Christianity. And again, notice that it's a perversion. It's not a complete reinvention. That would be too easy to reject and spot. But if it's just changing it and slowly, step by step, trying to push it in a different direction, it can dupe a lot of people that aren't really grounded in the Bible. You can be very susceptible to being duped when you're not grounded. And another factor that this uh, verse adjusts or, or talks about as well is that it's, it's people-pleasing that can pull you in as well. That pressure to fit in. You'll see throughout the Bible, one of the biggest themes in the Bible is you do not seek to fit in with the world. God has set you apart. You're to stand out. God's called you to be different because he knows the power of uh, that, that pressure. And that's one of the most common and most used, yeah, most used tactics of the enemy is to put people in that position that have to choose between God and people-pleasing. And many people today are being pulled into a gospel that is actually heretical. It's non-biblical. But it's really well disguised to look like the real thing, just like that imposter wheat, that darnel, that's actually poison. Because you can't tell the difference of it unless there's maturity. Uh, the term that's being used now for this movement is called progressive Christianity. And why that's, it gets that name is supposedly it's a better version of Christianity. Christianity has progressed. Our understanding of the Bible has changed. And so much so that it's, it's just better suited for today. And that type of, of movement, that's happened all throughout Christianity. That, you know, that people tried to adjust it to better fit the times. And we serve a God that's unchanging. Still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I've been doing a deep dive in this moment. Uh, I'm just going to show you the books that I've been reading. And kind of the end of my message to give you the conclusion already is to kind of do your research and to actually spend some time educating yourself. But the first one I was reading is called Another Gospel, which is obviously coming from this passage of Scripture. It's very, very easy to read. It's not a uh, super advanced theological book. The lady who wrote it used to be in like a girl pop band in Christianity, so not exactly a theologian. Um, but she went through and kind of got duped by some of this and then started to get into the Word, started to look into apologetics, started to look at theology and realize that she was kind of being uh, taken astray. And it goes through all sorts of stuff. Very, very um, good book that kind of goes through every critique there is really of Christianity and gives a fairly quick, easily understandable uh, response to it. And then if you want to get into some deeper theology, and it's a little bit harder to read. And if you, if you sometimes have issues with understanding the Old Testament and seeing God uh, acting morally, because uh, sometimes it seems odd what's going on in the New Testament, I'd recommend this one, Is God a Moral Monster? And making sense of the Old Testament God. And I'm not even done this yet. You can see my bookmark in it. But it's um, radically uh, reshaping even how I look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Joshua. And you see the exact same God there that you see in the New Testament with Jesus. It's pretty amazing the love and the patience that God has. And then uh, finally, this is I just got this in the mail Friday or Thursday. It's called Fault Lines. The Social Justice Movement and Evangelism. Uh, Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe, and this is written by Vody Bauckham. Uh, he's probably the world's leading expert in what I'm about to talk about. Uh, he has multiple doctorates in this. Uh, he's a black man that grew up in kind of the slums of L.A., had a radical encounter with Jesus, and now he actually leads a university in Africa. And uh, that book is actually climbing the charts even secularly right now to the point Obviously, normally New York Times will not recognize the fact when a Christian book is really taking off, but that one's kind of spreading like wildfire. I don't think it's even available in Canada just yet. I had to get it from Amazon.com. But, uh, but anyway, so the origin of this current movement, this progressive Christianity, I'm going to focus on the social gospel side today. Um, but it mostly comes from two things. It comes from the atheists attacking Christianity, and Christians either, instead of actually defending those attacks and getting into the word, really knowing their theology, they'll just say, you know what, you're right. And then they start changing Christianity to better suit, uh, you know, what fits society and their critique of stuff. 
And then the other one, uh, the other side of it is critical theory, and that's what I'm going to kind of focus on today. It's a completely different worldview that is being pushed like no one's business right now, and that uh, kind of, that is the train, that is the engine that is leading the social justice movement right now. And I'll say numerous times, it's not all bad, obviously, but this is the engine that's pulling it. And I, I'm trying to show you what the difference is between the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, so you can kind of discern. And specifically, critical theory mainly focuses um, it's on race and gender. You've probably heard of critical race theory especially. And so I'm going to first look at critical theory and show you that that is completely diametrically opposed to Christianity, and it can't be so easily married to Christianity like some people think it is. And why is it messing with the church so badly, especially with young people? It's because of, um, this is a little mean, but it's because of their uh, biblical illiteracy. Now, you might know the stories of the Bible, but do you know the theology of the Bible? A lot of people skip a lot of that stuff because it's not as dramatic as some of the, the stories. But when you don't really know the foundational theology of the Bible, it's very easy for you to be manipulated, especially by your feelings. The Bible says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Very easy to be uh, shifted here, there, everywhere. And again, the other dynamics at play is this strong desire to fit in, which is always worse amongst younger people, especially in the age of social media. I remember when some of this was going on that I just felt pulled in every which direction. And I went to God, and he said, from whom do you get your marching orders? Who are you listening to? So what continually happens is a bunch of unwitting Christians will take the philosophies and the methodologies of this secular movement, and they're going to combine it with their faith and think nothing of it. Think they're kind of one and the same, and they're not. So I'm going to show today how perverted and distorted it is, and how it's diametrically opposed to biblical teaching. And it can't be easily combined. And yeah, I just want you to be able to better spot weeds, to better spot the things that are within the kingdom of heaven that are not of God. These weeds that need to be whacked. And before I begin, I just want to articulate that I'm actually uniquely qualified to talk about this topic. Unlike most young people, I didn't get my education on this by simply scrolling through Instagram or watching a couple documentaries or talking to my buddies. No, I actually happen to have two degrees studying social science. In particular, my overarching field of study was look, to look at the philosophies that have shaped the Western world. How did we get to where we are today? And obviously Christianity is a massive part of that. It's the biggest part. It's the greatest influence on the, the Western world and the world in general. Of course, we do have some weird, funny stuff that happened within the Western world as well. And that's where critical theory comes from. And again, I have to say this multiple times. Critical theory is the largest part of the social justice movement. It's not the only part. And there is some totally fine things that are kind of mixed in there. But this is what's actually steering the ship. And actually, the technical term for what's going on right now and has been for numerous years is critical social justice. Not just social justice, that's actually originally a Christian term, but critical social justice because it's a different form of social justice. And again, it's critical because it comes from critical theory. And I'm not making this into a boogeyman. I'm not trying to make this into something it's not to make it look bad. I'm not uh, trying to make it into a straw man I can easily knock down. I'm just going to tell you straight up what it is. And it's very easy to find this as well. So anyways, it originally comes from Marxism, a.k.a. communism. Karl Marx, probably heard of this guy in the 1800s. He wrote a book called The Communist Manifesto. And he believed that the problem with society is, th is that the lower class needed to overthrow the upper class. And when they did, that would bring about a paradise of equality. And if you know anything about history, you know that that never actually worked, not one time. And instead, the Communist Manifesto is literally the bloodiest book of all time, responsible for hundreds of millions of deaths. Not even close. Now fast forward to Germany in the 1920s and 30s, right in between World War I and World War II. Again, if you know anything about history, this is not the greatest time, not the greatest place at that moment. There's a bunch of people that hated the Western world. They hated capitalism, and they decided to take Marxist theory, and they, and they were like, well, it didn't work, and it hasn't worked the greatest and that's because they tried to change the economy and they didn't change culture. And culture influences everything. And they're right in that. Culture will eat everything else for breakfast. So they said they're going to apply the principles of Marxism to culture. 
And they said everyone can be divided in all throughout culture in two groups, the oppressors on the top and the oppressor, the oppressed. The oppressors and the oppressed. And it teaches that your identity comes from which of those groups you belong in. And you can belong to multiple groups. So you can be part of the oppressive class, but be part of the oppressed gender or the oppressed race. And so it's really big on your identity comes from the group that you're a part of, your, your class, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, whether you're disabled or able, that defines you. It says this oppression is, 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 is part of every aspect of your life. From putting on your shoes in the morning to every conversation you have with people, it's part of everything. They can find it everywhere. And it says the answer to this issue is activism. The oppressed need to be, they need to be liberated and they need to be put in charge. They need to be the ones whose voices we hear. Why? Because they believe that the oppressed are the ones that hold the truth. They do not believe in objective truth. Actually, they don't, they don't believe in science. They believe science was created by a bunch of oppressors. By the way, science has its origins in Christianity as well. Uh, people that, for the glory of God, wanted to study the earth. The scientific method, which is the basic, the basis of science, which is observe and take, take down notes and, and, and write data, that comes from a Christian. But anyways, yeah, the oppressed are the ones that hold the truth. Truth is subjective. And it says the more oppressed you are, the more moral authority you have. So the further you are down society's totem pole, the more that you actually know what's going on. You hold the truth. You have a moral authority. And on the opposite side of the coin, the higher up you are in society's totem pole, the more that you are, belong to oppressor groups, the more that you do not have any moral authority. You have no idea what right and wrong is because your understanding of truth is completely clouded by your privilege. Now, if you lay down that privilege and recognize it, you can be deemed woke. But critical theory teaches that also that the more oppressed you are, the less moral responsibility you have. If you're oppressed, if you're down the totem pole of society, you, don't ha you, you can't actually be held morally responsible for your actions. You're oppressed. So you can do immoral things, and it's okay. Now, oppressors, by the way, if you wanted to know, not just white people, Tasha also considered Asian, Hispanic, Arab, Indian, lighter-skinned black people, and black people that don't agree with critical theory. Then there's also religious privilege, and that's Christianity. Christianity, according to critical theory, is considered oppressive. It is considered an oppressor, that it needs to be overthrown. That alone should tell you this does not mesh well with Christianity. Here's a very key point. It says that these oppressors, they can never actually change. They can never actually get rid of this oppressive tendencies that they have. They, they can never be cured. And so therefore, they must live a life of perpetual penance, living a life continually to make up for what's been done. Believes there's no other alternative critical theory is the way, the truth, and the life. And anything else that is suggested is considered oppressive, considered racist. So in summation, I'm a white, straight, middle-class, able-bodied Christian. And according to critical theory, I'm a terrible oppressor who knows nothing. But oddly enough, the people that actually came up with this theory in the 1940s were also white, straight, middle-class, able-bodied males. So by their own theory, they should know what they're talking about. And actually, if you were to look into the realm of philosophy, this is considered a complete joke. It was considered um, a very obscure, nonsensical theory and anti-scientific. No wonder, considering they think science was made by the oppressors. They don't believe in truth. And uh, the seminal new paper of this movement, written in 1989, called White Privilege, if it was given to a high school social studies teacher, they would give it a zero. Why? Because it cite, there are zero citations in that entire document, meaning zero evidence is given for this theory. That's not how you write an argument paper in social studies. But again, why has it taken off? Especially why have Christians jumped into this fairly recently? So either Christians jump in because they think Christianity is not cutting it, Christianity isn't good in the matter, and in kind of the realm of justice especially, hurt, helping the oppressed. And to those people I've said, have you ever read world history? Christianity is literally the best thing that's ever happened to the world, especially to the, the hurting and the broken and the downtrodden and the poor. We have a long storied history of being very, very good and very effective in the realm of justice. I'm not going to go into that today. What I'm going to go into is that the more common dynamic at play is they think that the social justice stuff, critical social justice, 
is really just the same as Christianity. You know, they're just all about oppression. They're all about helping people. Christianity is all about helping people. Jesus was the nicest guy ever. He helped all sorts of people. It's all the same. But again, I don't think they know what they're talking about. This is the weed. This is poisonous. You can see already from what I've discussed, this is diametrically opposed to Christianity. So what I want to walk through today is actually what is the basics of Christianity and keep going back and forth to show that it does not at all jive with critical theory and the current social justice movement. So first of all, Christianity is all about breaking the power of sin and restoring our relationship with God. In Luke 4, 18 through 21, Jesus stands up and he announces his mission statement. He quotes from Isaiah, written hundreds of years before. It's a messianic passage about this hero that was going to come and set Israel free, because Israel had been under the thumb of oppression for many, many years. Another ruling power would come in and take over and tax them crazily. This is what it says in Isaiah, uh, and also uh, Jesus is quoting it here in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon, is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a very key thing. Before he did anything, he says, it's fulfilled. Now if we look at that mission statement of Jesus through the lens of social justice, through the lens of critical theory, it would seem Jesus was a very terrible social justice warrior because he didn't actually seem to end poverty, did he? Didn't elevate these poor people to positions of power and influence and make this, you know, society of paradise. Didn't lead a massive jailbreak, didn't set the captives free, seemingly. He only seemed to heal a few blind people and did not actually end the massive, intense oppression and persecution of the Romans. In fact, it got way worse. In fact, he got killed from it. So if, if that's the lens that we're looking at Christianity from, our hero, our savior, sucks at it. So if this is our version of Jesus, he's completely impotent and pathetic. Now let's look at it from the actual biblical perspective. Jesus is there to break the power of sin and restore relationship with God. If that's his real mission statement, he completed it perfectly. He wasn't really here to break the power of politics and economics. No, no, no. He broke the power of sin, which affects everything. And he gave us a new nature as human beings. So we didn't have to live a life that's continually separated from God. And he allowed us to live in paradise, which is in heaven, forever. Did he accomplish his actual spiritual mission? Yes, he did. He set the oppressed free. Set the blind free. Gave us new sight. Here's a, uh, if you want to actually get some decent, basic theology of the Bible, study Romans. It has all this sort of stuff in it. I'm just going to read a passage from Romans 6, 6 through 11 here. That kind of tells the story of what is the gospel. It says, we know that our, sin, our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive through God, through Christ Jesus. The differences between Christianity and critical theory are stark. Very obvious. See, Christianity says Jesus breaks the power of oppression. He breaks the power of sin, our true oppressor. Critical theory believes it's his advocates that will save the world. Jesus says who the Son sets free is free indeed. When he was on the cross, he says it is finished. Critical, series, critical theory says, no, it's not. You need to listen to us. We'll fix you. Bible says that Christ set us free, set us free from the power of sin. Critical theory, theory says that the... Those of us that qualify as oppressors will never be set free. We'll never break free from our oppressive tendencies. And in fact, it's not just our sins we're dealing with, but the sins of all the generations before us. We're going to be racist no matter what we do. We could apologize, but we'll still be racist. You have to spend your entire life making up for it. This is not the gospel. Let me tell you something. According to the gospel... The sins of your life before you encountered Jesus have been removed from you, as far as the east is from the west, never to be seen again. See, when Jesus makes you clean, you've been made white as snow. 
Jesus was a more, more than sufficient sacrifice. Critical theory de- denies the atonement that God was, that Jesus himself, God himself was not a good enough sacrifice to deal with the power of sin. Let me tell you, he was. He was more than enough. Yes, even with this new nature that God gives us, even when we're born again, sin can still wreak havoc in our life. It can mess with us, not to the same degree, obviously. But here's the thing. When we sin, when we make mistakes, we still keep going to God, and he still keeps cleaning us up. This is the process called sanctification. And if anyone is trying to shame you about your sins or your past or the sins of your ancestors, saying you'll never conquer sins, no, 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 tell them you've been justified. You've been made right with God. That has been wiped clean from the ledger. You've been set free from the, by the blood of the Lamb. And that you're also being continually formed in the image of Christ. And also that the work that God began, he's going to carry it to completion. He is a faithful God. He is a just God. Second, a massive aspect of Christianity is this aspect of the gospel, you know, that Jesus is going to set us free from sin. That he's going to restore relationship with, with God. This is for all mankind. This is for everybody. Critical theory teaches that there's many people deemed oppressors because of the color of their skin who will never be redeemed. Not at all biblical. God's redemption mission, from, uh, redemption mission is for the whole planet. We see this from when he first stated it back in Genesis 12 when he's talking to Abraham. And he says, it's my desire to bless all the nations through you. And he was referring to Jesus already way back then. That the work of Jesus was going to bless all the world. Then we go to the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 7. The Apostle John is given a vision of heaven. Here's what he sees. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, a.k.a. made pure, and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. That does not fit critical theory. It's our job as Christians to unleash this freedom on the, on the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus is more than sufficient to break the chains of sin in your life. He's more than sufficient to restore the relationship with God so you can walk in holiness and purity and truth. That is our mission. Yes, we desire that that's going to be spread all throughout history. Uh, sorry, all, through, all throughout every aspect of this world to reshape this world to look more and more like heaven. But we know that we're not going to get true heaven on earth. I'm going to have paradise here that eventually we're going to uh, need to go to heaven and this world's going to need to be destroyed. Ultimately, we know that we cannot bring salvation, we cannot deal with oppression unless the power of sin is dealt with. Heart change is very, very important to Christianity. It needs to happen. For example, if I rolled into Saudi Arabia tomorrow and I said, all right, according to the law, according to the, you know, the systemic structure, uh, we're going to say that men and women are now equal. And everyone's Christian. You know what would happen if I did that? It would be mass rebellion. wouldn't take. But if I went in and spent 100 years winning them over to Jesus, that would radically change society. It would work. Heart change is very, very important. And that's what we continue to preach in, in Christianity. And here's the thing. There's a lot of structures. There's a lot of history that we can't change. We can't do anything about. It's too late. Let me tell you something. Christianity is so radical and powerful that when it sets someone free, they're truly free even if the structure hasn't changed, even if their circumstance hasn't changed. It's so radical that it does that. Think of the history of Christianity, how it has a very long and storied history where people actually thrive under persecution, which makes no sense to critical theory. And how can that happen? Because who the sun sets free is free indeed. Think of what happened when Jesus came and he started setting people free and all the radical stuff happening in in the early church. You could still be in slavery and consider yourself free. So free, in fact, that you would go to your oppressor, you would go to your master, and you you would share the gospel with him very excitingly. That's what happened to Christianity. You don't actually need to change the physical circumstance because a lot of them we really can't. If we focused on that and banged our head against the wall and focused on some of these continually, we'd never really even do anything. But if we actually, as Christians, focused on sharing the gospel, we could change the whole world. Really, we would. 
and it spread like wildfire. Here's the beautiful thing. I know a lot of you have history that bad stuff happened to you, bad stuff happened to your people. A lot of sins gone on in this world. And I'll tell you something, I don't think the world's ever going to be able to make it all right. I don't think they're ever going to be able to make up for it. But I can tell you something, Jesus came. I can tell you when you get to heaven, there's going to be recompense for everything that's ever gone wrong. Everything that's ever affected your life and plagued your life, there will be recompense and there will be reward. There's only one person who can make it right, and his name's Jesus Christ. Also, here's one person in the entire Bible that completely blows critical theory right out of the water. His name's Apostle Paul. He was an oppressor. He was literally a Jew supremacist that hunted down the minority, which was Christians. Hunted them down and killed them. Lynched them. Led lynch mobs. According to critical theory, these people would be beyond help. But no, not to Jesus. He had a radical encounter with, Apost with, with Paul, and his life was changed for forever. So much so that the very people that, that Paul hated, these non-Jews, he dedicated his entire life to setting them free and, and teaching them about Jesus. That's radical. That's radically different than critical theory. That's the power of God. He can take the worst of the worst and radically change them into the best of the best. Do you realize that our New Testament is literally written mostly from a guy who was a former supremacist, but he encountered God, radically changed his life. Also, a bunch of our New Testament is literally written from people in jail. Pretty radically different. Somehow Christianity is an oppressor, though, according to this critical theory, but whatever. Powerful encounter with Jesus can literally save anybody. That's, why we're, that's, that's who we're praising here when we're singing songs. Paul writes this, and he's quoting from Jesus in Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. That does not sound like critical theory to me. Loving your enemies? Radically different. One of the most, uh, the most recent ones was defund the police. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. That's not biblical justice. We love our oppressors. We, we, love, we love anyone that's done wrong to us. And we work through that whole process to save their souls because they're worth saving. They're still God's kid no matter what they've done. You'll notice throughout a lot of this critical social justice movement that their version of justice is actually vengeance. The Bible says vengeance belongs to the God. It's not the same. Brings us into our third point. The gospel provides definitive truth and impartial justice, real justice. A relationship with God is our ultimate answer to the world's problems. He's the truth. He's the definition of truth. Critical theory does not believe there is a truth. At least an object of truth. Believe in a subject of truth. God is all-knowing. Critical theory says that the oppressed of society are the only ones that know the truth. The Bible teaches that those apart from God are the blind leading the blind. Look throughout the Bible. Does it give a glowing recommendation to getting behind the world and following their ethics? No, it does not. The blind leading the blind. And again, go back to Jesus' reference, or Jesus' mission statement about recovering sight for the blind. Who's he talking to? The world. The world is blind, and he's trying to give them true sight, truth. He's the truth. He's true justice. Continuing with critical theory, it says it's um, only the oppressed know the truth, and we need to be deferential to their opinions. We need to take their word above other people's word. That is not biblical justice. That is not impartial. Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. We don't adjust our justice to favor somebody. James 2.9, But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Romans 2.11, for God does not show favoritism. Keep going here. Critical theory says it, it teaches that the oppressed cannot be held accountable for their immoral actions because they are oppressed. They can't sin because they're being sinned against. Try these Bible verses out. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. 
But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. That is not critical theory. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Romans 3.10, the scriptures say no one is righteous, not even one. Romans 2.6, he will judge everyone according to what they have done. There's not people living this earth that are without sin. We all need Jesus the same. All need it equally. We all need to be washed clean. Our sins are different. We do different things that are wrong and bad. And also the scripture says that even if you are angry, you can't sin in your anger. Your sin is never justified. It's not biblical. We all need to be washed clean. Something that's so beautiful about Christianity is it cuts us all down to size. Puts us all in the same boat. There's Jesus and then there's the rest of you. You all need Jesus. It's that simple. That's how we, that's how we preach the gospel. There's Jesus. He's perfect. The rest of us aren't. We all need him. No matter what you've done, no, one's, no one holds a candle to him. No one's, no one's anywhere close to him. He's the only one that's lived a perfect life. I can't turn around and be judging other people as if I'm better than them because I'm not. I point them to Jesus because he's the one that actually is better than them. He's the only one that's lived a perfect life. He's the only one that really actually has the authority to talk about how we live a perfect life. He's the only one that can talk about how we get away from sin, how we get uh, over the power of sin. And fourthly, here we have Christianity. What does it do? It provides identity, God-given identity, God-given belonging, and God-given value. Critical theory, social justice, divides us into our class, our race, our gender, our ability. Christianity unites us all under one banner. One of the most radical things said in all of history, again, written by Paul in Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our primary identity as Christians is that we've been adopted into, into royalty. We've been adopted into the family of God. We do not allow our differing races or our socioeconomic situations or, our, our, or the fact that we're male or female to divide us. In fact, we celebrate that God's freedom has touched such a diverse group of people. We champion each other and we champion the fact that God's freedom has touched every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the young and the old and the male and the female. And we, we are binded together by this supernatural unity that God has given us. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are the brothers and sisters. We are the family of God. Critical theory says that there's really no individual. It's all about your group identity. God says he knew you bef before you had a group, be before you had a grace, before you even developed reproductive organs. Jeremiah 1 says that God knew you before he formed you in the womb. Your identity was set long before any of these factors were ever applied to you. Luke 15.10 says that one, when one person, just one person comes to know Jesus as their Savior, comes to know this freedom that God was all about providing, all of heaven rejoices. Individuals are very important to God. In the parable of the lost sheep we see appearing in both Matthew and Luke, God is described as being like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and if one of those sheep goes missing, he doesn't just say, ah, no big deal, I still have 99. He does whatever he can to find that one sheep because that one sheep's important to him. God does not want a single person to not have fellowship with him, to be left out of heaven. He wants salvation for every single person. I often describe this scenario that heaven and God is kind of like, say, when I go home for, our, uh, for say, like Thanksgiving dinner. If my mom's cooking Thanksgiving dinner, she has three kids. If she has two out of three, would she say, hey, I have the majority. That's awesome. And say I wasn't there. No, she'd say, I want Christopher here because Christopher is unique. He's my son. He's my kid. What Elizabeth and Michael bring to the table is different. They have their own special thing. No, you're not just a part of a group. You're, you matter as an individual. When we're ministering to people, like I hear people say all the time, you know, I, I have a heart for the poor. And honestly, if you do, 
I sure hope you know their names. People that say, you know, I, you know I'm all about the orphans in Indonesia. You live here in St. Paul, Alberta. Do you actually know them? The Bible says to love your neighbor, someone you actually know, and you can reach. Again, we're going to get to the conclusion here, but the enemy is a master manipulator. And we really need a guiding light to help us out. We need a lamp unto our feet, and that's the word of God. The Bible will show us the way. And it's more than, more than good enough. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed, meaning it came from him, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture can equip us for every good work because God's Spirit is involved in writing it. He was there every step along the way to make sure it's, it's what he wants to say and what we need to know. God knows best. And I'm pleading with you to really dive into Scripture and get to know theology. Get to know what the gospel really is so you're not being pulled into these counterfeits that look kind of similar. But when you hop on that train, all of a sudden you're on a train with a lot of boxcars that are radically different than Christianity. And then you're championing a movement that ultimately says Christianity is an oppressor and needs to go. It's that bad. When it comes to this critical social justice, when you, social justice stuff, when you're seeing the news, I want you to remember some of what's in this message here. First and foremost, if you're seeing a different definition of oppression, Different definition of sin, red flag. Remember that oppression will not be vanquished unless sin is. And that's the real oppression we're facing. We're wasting our time if we're not dealing with the power of sin. Obviously, we can do a lot of good stuff in the natural. We can feed people before we lead them to Jesus. That's totally okay. But if the gospel is completely taken out of the equation, it needs to happen at some point, then you know like that's not of God. Secondly, any social justice movement, again, the critical social justice, if it's not justice and salvation for everybody, for all mankind, meaning it is, it's excluding people, saying some are unworthy of salvation, some are unable to be saved or redeemed, that is not biblical justice. Thirdly, anything that is twisting the truth and gives very biased justice and is full of favoritism is not of God. That is not true justice. That is not biblical justice. And fourthly, anything that attacks the value of the individual and asserts that our earthly identity is found in groups and it is above our godly identity, that is not biblical. Do not get on that train. Do not promote that. And again, get into the word. Get to know this stuff. Something that really helped me, and if I go all the way back to my beginning, when a lot of this was going on and I just felt pulled in every direction and I felt that pressure to fit in, God spoke to me in the middle of my office, and he said, from whom do you get your marching orders? And what has really helped me in a lot of this is that I know my calling. I know to whom I'm called. No one's ever going to be marching through the streets for the kids of St. Paul. They're not, you know, a flashy enough mission. They don't, people just don't care. It doesn't sell in the news. But they're, they're very worth it to God. The people that you work with, they're worth it to God. They're worth your mission. They're worth your time. Don't be guilted in to the people saying that your mission, that your purpose, that your calling is not worthy. That you need to be spending all your time, money, and energy somewhere else because it's more important. No, dial into God. Let him tell you who to reach. He has sent you to St. Paul, Alberta, or wherever in the Lakeland region for a reason. It's to reach the people here. They're important to God. He wants every tribe, every tongue, every nation in heaven. It's our job to bring the people in the Lakeland region to that they are worthy of our every action. They're worthy of our mission. They're worthy of our time. Honestly, if your emotional energy is continually being, you know, taken out of you to fight these random battles that you have nothing to do with, you're being terribly duped. And you will find that you do not have the emotional energy or the care or the desire to help people in the here and now and the right here. That is what is probably one of the most heinous things about this movement, is it pulls you away from your neighbor, your actual real-life neighbor that you're supposed to be reaching. 
The Bible, the Bible, yes, we can deal with things on a very high level. Again, Christianity has a very long and storied history of radically transforming the world. It really does. But it starts in your neighborhood. It starts with pursuing God. We often use the word revival here, and it's something we really look for. And again, this is not the critical theory whatsoever. But sometimes when God shows up in an area so much, it radically changes every aspect of society. Uh, within, there's a lot of uh, revivals that happened in Ireland. And what's kind of funny is Christianity showed up so much that the jail shut down. No need for the police anymore because people were radically in love with Jesus. The bars shut down. Crime just completely disappeared. Radically change of society because people encounter Jesus. That's what we believe. That's what we want. That's how you defund the police right there. And get everyone actually living for Jesus. I felt this conviction uh, come on me recently. I'm a really nice person. I do not like confrontation. But I believe God said that it's time to stand up. Time to stand up for the truth. And honestly, there's a lot of people that might not listen to you. Jesus says that even when he rose from the dead, that wasn't going to convince some people. A lot of hard-heartedness is out there. Why? Because a lot of people make this their identity. In general, people hate saying they were wrong, even a little bit. But I want to say, especially to the young people and to the younger generation, that there is answers for all those big questions you have. Honestly, go ahead and ask them, but do the research. Don't just hang out in the realm of criticism. That's what critical theory is. Dive deep, find the answers, ask for them. Be humble, ask for the answers. They are there. God is truly just. He knows what he's doing. He will give you the proper way to live your life in every aspect of it. I just want to end in prayer here. And I also just want to say, I thought what was neat, I felt somewhat nervous about giving this service because it's fairly political, politically charged. And I'm, I'm sticking my neck out because I do not fit in with my uh, demographic but I've long stopped caring about that. But I was so touched, actually, even during the worship service, how we were conti continuing to declare a lot of what was in my message, what we were singing, and even the word Lynn gave, just like, that God is just. A lot of people doubt, uh, doubt the justice of God. Nope. He's just. We're singing to him for a reason. Anyway, this is going to end in prayer here. And if you, wanted to, if you didn't write them down, you want to take a quick look at those books in case you wanted to order them. And uh, especially, I want to say, especially if you have kids um, or young adults, or if you are a young adult, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time, but seriously, you know, put your nose in the books and the book, and you'll get to know a radical, amazing Christianity. And it'll change your life and give you the foundations to weather every storm you'll ever encounter. Anyways, let's just end in prayer here. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for the fact that it's a guiding light. God, the enemy is a great deceiver. He is brilliant at deception. His best lies are the ones that are so close to the truth, that tug at our heartstrings and manipulate us emotionally. But God, we want to build our lives on the rock, not on these shifting sands. We can't listen to the world's version of morality because they don't have it. And so God, I just pray that a new conviction is going to come across this church that they're actually going to really get to know theology. They're going to really dive into what's the real gospel. They're going to get into the word. Not just read the stories, but get into the, you know, the theological summaries and, and the teaching. And they can get grounded. God, I pray especially for the young adults and our, our teenagers. That rather than be sucked in to conform into the patterns of this world. That instead, they'd be able, they'd be able to stand up against it. That they'd be comfortable being a contrarian and standing out. And God, may their testimony be the fact that they are secure in their foundation. That they're not constantly shifting all over the place like culture does. But they are rooted. And people would see the freedom in that. To actually know your real live identity. To know who you really are and to know your purpose and to know your mission. And God, that that would be just this extremely alluring thing to the world. That they'd realize that they cannot ride this roller coaster of up and down and back and forth 
and emotional up and downs continually. That instead they could live a life that's targeted and specific to a, to a calling. They could live with an, an unshakable identity and know who they really are. And God, I pray that we'll be able to stand up and do it with grace and love. We also pray that we'd be able to do it in a way that we um, aren't compromising and not compromising the faith and actually allowing lies to stand and be proliferated. God, we want the real deal Christianity here in this church. And God, we know that when that happens and when that's around, that there's nothing the gates of hell can do to stop it. So that's what we're going to pursue. That's what we're going to hold on to. And God, I even just speak to the hardness of hearts that are out there right now. People deeply entrenched in opinions. God, I pray that your love would go into there and just begin to take those hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. God, that they would be open to hearing your voice once again. And for you to come in and be their guiding light. And God, I pray that you'd help the church rise up and lead in, in these matters of justice and identity and freedom. And that our version of it would be radically different and it would stand out and be radically more effective than the world's version. So that people's eyes would be turned to you. Because God, we don't want to shrink away from justice and let the world run with it. The same as we don't want to shrink away from love and let the world run with that either. So God, may you give us the roadmap to lead in a way, God, that's going to bring a multitude to you. We exist to bring a multitude of people from this Lakeland region to you. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And God, I pray for those that have, a, have allowed even a hatred in their heart to come for other people, people that don't look like them, people that might be privileged or deemed oppressive or all that kind of stuff, God, that instead they'd be able to see their brother, their sister, a fellow child of God, worthy of love, worthy of redemption. And God, we just pray for a supernatural unity in this church. God, you're so above politics and economics. It's not really about our opinions at all. It's just, we just know you can handle all of that and we're going to just key into you. God, I pay... I pray people are going to be able to lay down a lot of that stuff and just love one another once again. This world is getting crazily divided, and the church should be that city on a hill, and it should be this place of unity that is radically different from the world. And say, what do you mean you can all get along and you're so different? Because we are one in Christ Jesus, that's why. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.